Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 12 of the History Books and Wine podcast. I'm your host this week, Lori Ann Bailey. I'm a National Reader's Choice and Holt Medallion award-winning author who writes Scottish historicals with hot Highland heroes and spunky independent lasses finding their perfect matches in the Scottish Highlands. If you've tuned in for the last two weeks, you've heard Eliza Knight and Madeline Martin discussing cleaning and healing in previous times. Next week, you will get all three of us for our monthly happy hour as we dive into hygiene, the fun stuff. And so exciting, next week we will all three be together on our writing retreat, so that's going to be an extra treat and lots of fun. Today, it's my turn to share, and I'm ready to dive in and tell you all about what and how people cooked in the past, at least in the medieval period. Today, I'll be drinking Adega Billa Real, 2013 Dora Doc Reserva from Portugal, and I chose this wine solely by the fact that wine enthusiasts gave it 90 points, and it's on the top 100 best buys of 2017, even though it's a 2013 wine. So here's what the label says. Adega Villa Real Reserva has intense aromas of black fruit, spice, and licorice. The aging in our cellars is to highlight the fruit aromas and flavors. Velvety in the mouth with a long, warm, and flavorful finish. It's an excellent example of a Duro Terrier. Wine with a modern international profile. And... Here it says that you should enjoy with Mediterranean specialties like roasted and grilled meats serve at 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So I put this in the refrigerator just a little while ago so it could chill slightly. And I just kind of found that interesting because uh, I heard somewhere else recently that you should technically chill red wine before opening it. Uh, I've never done that before, so I'm giving it a try. Not too bad. I may have to consider doing that a little bit more in the future. Today, I'm going into a medieval kitchen to tell you all about cooking and foods of the past. In most households, cooking was done on an open hearth in the middle of the main living area. This was to make efficient use of the heat. Even in wealthy households, For most of the Middle Ages, the kitchen was combined with the dining hall. Towards the late Middle Ages, a separate kitchen area began to evolve. The first step in this was to move the fireplaces towards the walls of the main hall, and later to build a separate building or wing that contained a dedicated kitchen area, often separated from the main building by a covered arcade. This way, the smoke Odors and bustle of the kitchen could be kept out of sight of guests 
and the fire hazard was reduced. Many basic variations of cooking utensils we use now, like frying pans, pots, kettles, and waffle irons already existed, although they were often too expensive for poorer households. Other tools more specific to cooking over an open fire were spits and material for skewering meats. There were also cranes with adjustable hooks so that pots and cauldrons could easily be swung away from the fire to keep them from burning or boiling over. Makes me think, I already have so many accidents in my kitchen, I cannot imagine working in those kind of conditions. Utensils were often held directly over the fire or placed into embers on tripods. There were also assorted knives, stirring spoons, ladles, and even graters. In wealthy households, one of the most common tools was the mortar and sieve cloth. Since many medieval recipes called for food to be finely chopped, mashed, strained, and seasoned, either before or after cooking, this was based on a belief by physicians that the finer the consistency of food, the more effectively the body would absorb the nourishment. It does make sense that that might have helped with digestion. It also gave skilled cooks the opportunity to elaborately shape the results. And as soon as I read that, an image of something you can get at the grocery store today popped into my head. You know, when you're going through the dairy aisle and you see those little butters that are shaped like turkeys at Thanksgiving and bunnies at Easter? I just had to throw that in, that that was the first thing that popped into my head. I'm sure things were a little bit more elaborate then and made with uh, maybe the main dish versus the condiments, but I just thought that was interesting. A normal procedure was farcing, which came from Latin farcio, which means to cram. And this is to skin and dress an animal, grind up the meat, and mix it with spices and other ingredients, and then return it into its own skin or mold it into the shape of a completely different animal. The kitchen staff of huge noble or royal courts occasionally numbered in the hundreds and would require pantlers, bakers, waferers, sauciers, larderers, butchers, carvers, page boys, milkmaids, butlers, and numerous scullions. But an average peasant household often made do with firewood collected from the surrounding woodlands and only the family members to prepare the meal. As with almost every part of life at the time, a medieval meal was generally a communal affair. The entire household, including servants, would ideally dine together. To sneak off to enjoy private company was considered a haughty and inefficient egotism in a world where people depended very much on each other. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, the wealthy increasingly sought to escape this regime of stern collectivism. When possible, rich hosts retired with their consorts to private chambers where the meal would be enjoyed in greater exclusivity and privacy. 
being invited into the Lord's chambers was a great privilege and could be used as a way to reward friends and allies and to awe subordinates. It allowed lords to distance themselves further from the household and to enjoy more luxurious treats while serving inferior food to the rest of the household that still had to dine in the great hall. At major occasions and banquets, however, the host and hostess generally dined in the great hall with everyone else. Although there are descriptions of dining etiquette on special occasions, less is known about the details of day-to-day meals of the elite or about the table manners of the common people and the destitute. But it can be assumed there were no such extravagant luxuries as multiple courses, luxurious spices, or hand-washing and scented water in everyday meals. Things were different for the wealthy, of course. Before the meal and between courses, shallow basins and linen towels were offered to guests so they could wash their hands, as cleanliness was emphasized. Social codes made it difficult for women to uphold the ideal of immaculate neatness and delicacy while enjoying a meal. Can you imagine? I mean, if you spill something on your dress, then it's not as easy as throwing it in the washing machine and having clean clothes right away. So wives and hosts often dined in private with their entourage or ate very little at such feasts. She could then join dinner only after the potentially messy business of eating was done. Overall, fine dining was a predominantly male affair, and it was uncommon for anyone but the most honored of guests to bring his wife or her ladies of waiting. The hierarchical nature of society was reinforced by etiquette where the lower ranked were expected to help the higher, the younger to assist the elder, and men to spare women the risk of selling their dress and reputation by having to handle food in an unwomanly fashion. Thank goodness they haven't seen me eat. Shared drinking cups were common at lavish banquets for all but those who sat at the high table. As was the standard of etiquette of breaking bread and carving meat for one's fellow diners. Food was mostly served on plates or in stew pots, and diners would take their share from the dishes and place it on trenchers of stale bread or wood or pewter with the help of spoons or bare hands. In lower class households, it was common to eat food straight off the table. Knives were used at the table, but most people were expected to bring their own, and only highly favored guests would be given a personal knife. A knife was usually shared with at least one other dinner guest, unless one was of very high rank or well acquainted with the host. Forks for eating were not in widespread usage in Europe until the early modern period, and early on were limited to Italy. Even there, it was not until the 14th century that the fork became common among Italians of all social classes. So be thankful we have forks. And I can see how eating did get very messy. In Europe, there were typically two meals a day. Dinner at midday and a lighter supper in the evening. I know it sounds odd, but that absolutely makes sense to me. 
I've always wanted lunch as my big meal of the day, and I tend to overeat at that time of the day and then want a lighter dinner. So the schedule would have worked perfectly for me. The two meal system remained constant throughout the late Middle Ages. Smaller intermediate meals were common, but became a matter of social status, as those who did not have to perform manual labor could go without them. Some people frowned on breaking the overnight fast too early, and members of the church and cultivated gentry avoided it. For practical reasons, breakfast was still eaten by working men and was tolerated for young children, women, the elderly, and the sick. Because the church preached against gluttony and other weaknesses of the flesh, men tended to be ashamed of the weak practicality of breakfast. Lavish dinner banquets and late-night meals with considerable amounts of alcoholic beverages were considered immoral. The latter were especially associated with gambling, crude language, drunkenness, and lewd behavior. Minor meals and snacks were common, although also disliked by the church, and working men commonly received an allowance from their employers in order to buy nunchens, which were small morsels to be eaten during breaks. Bread was the basic food in the Middle Ages, and it could be made with barley, rye, and wheat. Wealthy people used thick slices of brown bread as bowls called trenchers to soak up juice and sauce from the food. So I know I mentioned that earlier, but I also have to say that that reminds me of like when you go to a restaurant and you get a dip in a bowl uh, made of bread or when you make something like that for guests coming over to the house. Who knew that long ago that it was going to be fashionable even now? A staple food of the poor was called pottage, a stew made of oats and garden vegetables with a tiny bit of meat in it. It was often thickened with stale breadcrumbs. Some of the common meats on the menu in a medieval castle would include pork, beef, poultry, venison, duck, and fish. Uh, And some of the weird things I saw were, gosh, a sheep's penis, and there was this elaborate way for how uh, that was done. Swans were on the menu occasionally, and there is at least one recipe in a medieval book for cat. And the wording suggests that it was not something commonly served to the nobility, thank goodness. It is unclear whether the lower classes routinely ate cat meat. I'm hoping they didn't. But it also seems that horses were occasionally eaten. That was in one of the cookbooks as well. They had eggs and dairy, but cheese was not what we know it as today. Cheese comes from Cheddar, England. However, the standardized cheddaring process only dates back to the 18th century, and the word cheddar itself, meaning a type of cheese, only dates back to 1655. Some of the typical vegetables that I saw on menus were spinach, artichokes, asparagus, cabbage, turnips, parsley, onions, eggplants, peas, mushrooms, and leeks. Oh, and potatoes and tomatoes both originated in the Americas, and therefore they were not available in Europe before 1492. They also had pasta, grains, and breads. However, they would not be exactly the way we find them in the grocery store today. 
It's easy to find recipes using fruit in medieval cookbooks. References to fruits like apples, pears, plums, and grapes are frequent, but the apples they ate may not be the same as those we have now. Some varieties, like Red Delicious, are clearly modern, but others with long histories can be difficult to document. Other fruits I found references to are strawberries and currants. A type of refined cooking developed in the late Middle Ages that set the standard among the nobility all over Europe. Common seasonings in food included verjuice, wine, and vinegar in combination with spices such as black pepper, saffron, and ginger. These, along with the widespread use of sugar or honey, gave many dishes a sweet-sour flavor. Almonds were also very popular as a thickener in soups, stews, and sauces, particularly as almond milk. So that's another thing that was popular back in the Middle Ages that is now trendy right now. I see almond milk everywhere I go now. Contrary to the myth that went around, spices were not used to hide the smell of meat gone bad. This is a myth that started in the Victorian era and has no basis in fact. This practice would have been unfeasible because of health, it would have killed them, and because of economics, it would have been way too expensive to put so many spices on your meat. I mean, meat was expensive to begin with, but spices were crazy expensive. And the other issue would be logistics, because it would have required vast amounts of meat to be kept hanging around for days. In my research, I found a very detailed listing of earliest foods found in medieval cookbooks, listed out by country and year it approved. Uh, Seriously, I was very impressed with this list, and I'm going to post it in the show notes. Now that you have your meal, what did you wash it all down with? These days, we often drink water with a meal. But in the Middle Ages, concerns over purity medicinal recommendations, and its low prestige value made it less favored, and alcoholic beverages were preferred. They were seen as more nutritious and beneficial to digestion, with the invaluable bonus of being less prone to putrefaction due to the alcohol content. Wine was consumed on a daily basis in most of France and all over the Western Mediterranean, wherever grapes were cultivated. Further north, it remained the preferred drink of the nobility who could afford it, and far less common among peasants and workers. The drink of commoners in the northern parts of the continent was primarily beer or ale. Juices, as well as wines, of multitude of fruits and berries had been known at least since Roman antiquity and were still consumed in the Middle Ages. Pomegranate, mulberry, and blackberry wine... Perry and cider, which was especially popular in the north, where both apples and pears were plentiful. Many variants of mead have been found in medieval recipes, with or without alcoholic content. And plain milk was not consumed by adults except the poor or sick. It was reserved for the very young or elderly, and then usually as buttermilk or whey. Fresh milk was overall less common than other dairy products because of the lack of technology to keep it from spoiling. Tea and coffee, both made from plants found in the old world, 
were popular in East Asia and the Muslim world during the Middle Ages. However, neither of these non-alcoholic social drinks were consumed in Europe before the late 16th and early 17th century. And that concludes our tour of the medieval kitchen. If you'd like to learn more, because there are recipes and so much more I didn't get to today, I'm going to post my sources in the show notes. On to what I'm reading this week. This week, I'm reading Rules for a Rogue by Christy Carlisle. Kit Ruthven's Rules for Rogues. Number one, love freely, but guard your heart, no matter how tempting the invader. Number two, embrace temptation, indulge your sensual impulses, and never apologize. Number three, scorn rules and do as you please. You are a rogue after all. Rules never brought anything but misery to Christopher Kit Ruthven. After rebelling against his controlling father and leaving the family's etiquette empire behind, Kit has been breaking everyone imaginable for the past four years. He's enjoyed London's sensual pleasures, but he's failed to achieve the success he craves as London's premier playwright. When his father dies, Kit returns to the countryside and is forced back into the life he never wanted. Worse, he must face Ophelia Marsden, the woman he left behind years before. After losing her father, Ophelia has learned to rely on herself. To main the family home and support her younger sister, she tutors young girls in deportment and decorum but her pupils would be scandalized if they knew she was also the author of a guidebook encouraging ladies to embrace their independence. As Kit rediscovers the life and the woman he left behind, Ophelia must choose between the practicalities she never truly believed in or the love she's never been able to extinguish. I just started this a couple days ago and haven't had a lot of time. I haven't made it very far, but I'm really enjoying the writing so far. And if you are interested in this one, I'm going to include the links for this book in the show notes. And now for one of my books. Highland Redemption is the second book in the Highland Pride series. And I chose to recommend this one today because my heroine Sky is an amazing cook. While spying for Clan Cameron, Brody Cameron rescues a lass, only to realize it's Skye, the woman who'd broken his heart. He needs to get her to her uncle as quickly as possible to keep her safe, but every minute he's distracted from his mission brings the clans that much closer to war. And having beautiful Skye anywhere near him is dangerous because the price on his head is higher than the one on hers. Upon being rescued from kidnappers, Skye finds herself staring into the eyes of the man she once loved, Brody Cameron. She's grateful to be freed, but has no idea how she'll resist the lad who has become a bra man, especially because she's promised to another in a political marriage forged to strengthen the royalist clans against the Covenanters who plot to turn Scotland upside down. 
I'll also include the link for this book in the show notes. And now it's time for a reader question. Let's see. This week, a reader wants to know, what's the hardest scenes for you to write? The hardest scenes for me to write are battle scenes. And I think that's because they take so much choreography and planning. And sometimes when it's a larger battle, there are several people involved and it's keeping everyone straight and just making sure everyone's actions are attributed to the right person. So yeah, I would say battle scenes are the hardest for me to write. And now I have a question for you guys. Since I'll be discussing whiskey on my next solo podcast, I want to know, what are your favorite ways to use or drink whiskey? And or do you have any fond memories of the amber liquid? I might share your story on the podcast. Email me at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Please join us next week, May 9th, for our monthly happy hour. Madeline Martin, Eliza Knight, and I will all be together at our annual retreat and we'll be discussing hygiene. We're going to have lots of fun with that one. There will be history, great stories, laughs, and I'm sure there will be lots of wine. Then join Eliza Knight on the 16th as she guides us through various alcoholic spirits and Madeline Martin on May 23rd when she'll give us the history of beer and I'll return on May 30th and I'll fill you in on all I know about whiskey. On June 6th we'll be back together to discuss our favorite libation wine. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com where we will have the show notes for today's episode. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. History, Books, and Wine can also be found on Spotify. And if you say, Alexa, play History, Books, and Wine podcast, she will play the most recent episode. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Thanks so much for tuning in and have a great week.